Welcome to South Point, everybody that's here in person and everybody online, see you out there. Glad that you are here, especially if this is your first time. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Want to start out with a little fun fact, controversy maybe in and of itself. Do you know that there was a version of the Bible that um, permitted or allowed or condoned adultery? It was called the Wicked Bible. Yeah, in 1631, uh, as a reprint in London of the King James Bible, and uh, some people call it the sinner's Bible or the adulterous Bible. And uh, so in, uh, when the Ten, why, right? When the Ten Commandments were written uh, in Exodus, so they mistakenly, they, they, it said, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> they left the not out. So it was a mistake, it was, uh, it was a misprint. And so, it, but that was an important word, right? And, uh, and so, of course, there was lots of controversy, scandalous at the time, you know, way back in the 1600s. And so they, you know, they, they, they tried to get rid of every single copy, got rid of all of them, all that kind of stuff. And um, yet some still sur survived that, and supposedly some even still exist uh, in existence today, you know. Um, and uh, supposedly it's worth a lot of money. You know, uh, some people, if you're from Boston, just because I love this, I can't do it very well. I just love the accent. Some people, if you're from Boston, it's the wicked, wicked Bible, you know like lobster. Anyways, I can't do it, but I just love the accent, so I love hearing it. So if you do have a Boston accent, thank you. Say that sometime to me. Anyways, um, all right, so why am I telling you that? Fun fact, just so, you know, there you go. You can talk about this sometime. Um, what we're going to be talking about today kind of talks about this whole idea of adultery, right, and sin. So is sin really sin? Uh, is, is scripture kind of like low morals? Like, you know, it's condoned, Kind of, there is no sin. You can do what you want to do, or maybe as Christians, you see, look, we can use this scripture, this passage to say we shouldn't say anything, couldn't, shouldn't call sin, sin, um, and just allow people to kind of do whatever maybe people choose to do, because this text is used for that kind of thing. And so that's what we're going to be getting into. But before uh, we do that, well, actually, I, I kind of give you an idea. The other reason we need to hear this is because... Um, Oftentimes, we're on either side of that stone. You know, like in the in text, if you read it or if you, you know, watch that video, uh, you, sometimes you're the one that's on the, on the receiving end and people are about to throw stones at you, right? And then sometimes you're on the side where you're about to pick up some stones and throw them. Imagine, you know, a silly way to think about this is you're driving on the interstate, right? And somebody cuts you off. <laughs> What side are you in that moment, right? Oh, you have so much mercy and compassion for that person, don't you? Lies. You're like ready to call them names and like they're the most horrible human being on the face of this planet down to the fourth generation. I curse you, right? Like you're just ready to give it to them, right? But when you're the one who accidentally cuts someone else off, what do you want? A little grace. And a silly little simple illustration like that, we can understand what it's like to be on either side of that stone. But before we get too much into that text and the main point, I got to deal with something because we get a problem. I don't know if you've noticed in your Bible or when you, were, you look at your Bible in this passage in John, there's, it's bracketed off, right? It's like separated after verse 53. Um, and maybe in your Bible it says something like uh, some manuscripts do not include this section or the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have these 12 verses. So it probably says something like this and it's kind of sectioned off. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's possible, although far from likely, that this story, this moment, isn't genuine or authentic. Well, what does that mean? This is one of those rare instances where we're not exactly sure if this should be in the Bible or not. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, thankfully, we have so many manuscripts that we have of the New Testament in particular that we get to look at so we can be near 100% positive about every word 
there. There's a couple of verses or words, and this is one of two like kind of longer passages, the other one being at the end of Mark's gospel, that we were not 100%. So, but you, all of them or both of them are in the Bibles. Why? Because the evidence is, is kind of on the side of saying that these are legit. What does this mean? So uh, maybe you've asked this question before. You still ask it today. I know a lot of people do. Like, how do I know the Bible, the books that are in the Bible should be there? After all, um, we don't have the originals, right? Like, nobody has the original that John, the apostle, actually wrote, penned, signed, autographed, something like that. We don't have the originals. Now, what's also true is that with any ancient text, literature, as you might read the Iliad, the Odyssey, or anything about ancient times, how do we have those works? because we have copies of copies of copies. And same with New Testament. We have copies of copies, or we have copies of copies, and then we have copies of copies of copies. That's how you have ancient texts. So it's the same. And the average for things like Iliad, Odyssey, most ancient documents, there's a gap between the time that the original was written and the first kind of like manuscripts, copies that we have on hand. And the average gap for most ancient literature is 1,000 years. With the New Testament, it's actually much shorter. And with the Gospel of John, we even have a fragmented uh, part of the Gospel of John that's dated all the way back to A.D. 125. That's almost 30 years, just 30 years after the original. There are so many manuscripts and so much um, understanding and proof that we have for what's in the New Testament. So when it comes to understanding if this is genuine or authentic, what does that mean? Imagine you have 2,000 manuscripts, copies of copies, that have this verse, um, but are copied 400 years after the original. And then you have two copies of copies that don't include the verse, but were 100 years after. Which one do you trust? That's called the science of textual criticism. So you have to ask these two questions. Is it genuine, meaning did John write this or did someone later write this, insert it, and it get copied? And then is it authentic, meaning that even if John didn't write this, did this actually happen? Did it occur like in history and time? And the general consensus is that it is authentic. It did happen. Some question its genuineness um, because two of the earliest, most important manuscripts it was not included in those two, and then some of the early Greek manuscripts it wasn't included in, and in some of the other manuscripts, it's not in this location, so it's not in John 8, it's at the end or in other places. The other thing is also true is this, like it's, it's really hard to understand or imagine how it's, it is in the, so many early manuscripts, copies, so many early ones, it's in there, and yet it wasn't in the original. So possible explanation could be one of the early copyists read that passage where it says neither do I condemn you and maybe they they struggled with it like wait a minute is this a mistake like is Jesus condoning like and allowing for low morals maybe they made like a little note on the side to say I I don't know it's a question about this and then a later copyist saw the note didn't know exactly what to do with it so took it out or put it at the end to signify there's a doubt that's at least what St. Augustine in 400 AD suggested. There you go. There's a little extra uh, material for you today. I wanted to talk about that because if you see that in your Bible. Now, let's get to the actual main text here. And I gotta, we got to set the stage because this is what actually 
happen. So Jesus walks into the temple early in the morning, and as soon as he's there, he's met the crowds gather, which they often did when he's around, and the Jewish leaders gather. And when they gather, they are setting up another trap to trick, to G- to trick Jesus, to get him in trouble, to get people to not follow him. And so that's where he walks into. And what the trap is, they literally bring this woman and throw her in front of him. And like doing this mock trial in front of everybody, like he's the judge. All right, Jesus, we just caught her in the act of adultery. What do we do? Now, first, have you ever been caught in the act of doing something? Anything. What about this one? That's difficult. I've been caught, not not in this one, but in like my mom caught caught me doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. You know, it's tough. Have you ever been a parent and then you're this situation, okay? You wake up. First thing, literally you wake up, you get out of bed, maybe you haven't even gotten out of bed, and the first thing you hear is, dad, or mom, whatever your situation, you know, mom, dad, she broke my toy, she did this, she got on my bed, well, she's not allowed to, no, I didn't, he did this, he's the one who did this, he's the one, and immediately, oh my, I haven't even woken up, I haven't had a coffee, my brain's not functioning, and I am thrown into the midst of Judge Mark, Judge Dad, right? And the truth is, neither one of those two kids have good intentions, One of them wants to get away with something, and one of them wants to get somebody in trouble. I don't really think either one of them is loving towards the other person and cares about truth. They just don't want to get in trouble, and they want to make my life miserable. (laughs) That's secondary. But anyways, that Jesus walks into the temple. Good morning, Jesus. Do we execute her or not? That's what's happening. That's what's going on. Has anybody thought already, like, wait a minute, where's the dude? Like, adultery ain't no solo sin here. Where's the guy? Great question. Does this mean the guy took off? You see, in their command, in their laws, both should be executed. They were punishable by death, adultery. So both, man and woman. Did he just take off and run? Probably not. Is this misogyny? Like, like they're just picking on the woman? She's the only one that can get in trouble? Possibly. Likely, he's in on it. Like, it's a deal he cut with the leaders because, again, their whole goal was to try to get Jesus in trouble, do something to prove something so they can question him or get people not to follow him. And, like, how do you get caught in the act by these people who happen to want to take Jesus down? Hmm, interesting, kind of convenient, isn't it? Well, we need witnesses for the trial, so why don't we just plant some witnesses and boom. This guy was most likely probably involved in this, cut a deal with the leaders, and so that's what was happening. Now, pause. How? It's like Jerry Springer, right? If you're like my age or whatever, or like just cops episode. Like, this is crazy stuff, man. But also it's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, from the human level, this girl, I don't care what she's done, she is the daughter of some father, some mother. She's a human being made in the image of God, and this is how the religious leaders treat her. She's a pawn in their scheme to get at Jesus. They they don't care about her. There's no love in this. There's no good intent. They don't treat her like a human being. So before we move forward, I just want to be honest. Have you ever treated someone like that? They cut you off. They did something, and instead of remembering or treating them like the human being that they are, they become a pawn, they become a way for you to get what you want, to vent, 
to get some relief. That's what's happening. It's not a pretty situation. Unfortunately, these leaders, religious leaders, aren't looking for truth. They're just looking to get a Jesus. And the, the, the dilemma for Jesus is this. If he says yes, she's guilty and condones like she should be executed, like capital punishment should happen, then at that day and time, the Roman overlords, they were the ones who were in charge and they were the ones who, only ones who could carry something like that out. So he would make trouble with the leaders, with the Romans. If he were to say yeah, I mean, if he were to say no, and not condone capital punishment here, then the crowds who love him and see him as a man of God, then well, he's saying no to the command of God, right? So that's the dilemma that Jesus faces. They're trying to get him into a no-win situation. It's an ugly situation for sure. And in that moment, I think it's kind of funny. This is one of the reasons why I love Jesus. I just, he does something that no one else probably would have done and you would have thought of. Okay, all of this stuff is happening. And instead of like yelling, instead of like going at them and accusing them and like telling them to, I'm just gonna bend down and start writing in the dirt. <laughs> okay, cool Jesus, like thanks for that. You know, like what did he write, right? Don't you wanna know? I know I do, everybody wants to know. What did he write? We don't know, there's lots of conjecture. No clue, no clue what he wrote. He just keeps writing, doodling in the dirt, whatever, and they keep pestering them until finally he stands up and then he responds in verse seven, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I, you could imagine, there, you could hear a, a pin drop in this moment, right? Like nobody was expecting a third option. And now notice, Jesus said, you wanna kill her? Go ahead. She broke the law, and the law says. So those of you who are not deserving of the same kind of fate, throw a stone. And in that moment, he disarmed them how? By forcing them to put themselves on trial. So now they're the ones with the dilemma. Wait a minute, if I, if I throw a stone, then I'm, I'm lying because I know that we're all sinners. And if I don't, then I'm exposing my hypocrisy in this moment, kind of saying, like, I'm a, we're not going to be obedient to what God says in this moment kind of thing. So now they're the ones that are kind of on trial. And so they're, you know, Jesus let them stew in their awkward silence and hopefully conviction because the truth is Jesus is wanting to expose them. Because most likely, several, if not a lot, of those religious leaders, the men in particular, the men probably had committed adultery but they hid it, it was a secret sin. They were okay with getting away with it, but now they were using this person to prove something. And Jesus wasn't okay with that, hoping to, to expose them and to convict them. And then this is where he, one by one they leave. He and this woman are left there, right? Um, and, and, and you know, in the, in the video, we don't, we don't know officially but remember, she was dragged from the midst of being caught in the act of adultery. What did she look like? Did she have clothes on? What did they look like? Don't know. How humiliating, right? Of course, the whole point for the leaders was to humiliate Jesus. So this is the moment. This lady is there. Don't picture her being proud and like, yeah, I got away with this. No, she is most like, I mean, she's mortified, horrified. Like, this is horrific, afraid of what's going to happen. Also, we know this because of the way that Jesus responds, very tender-hearted. 
And what does he say to her now that he's standing with her? Verse 10 and 11, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now understand, he was there and Jesus had not sinned, so he could condemn her. He could pick up a stone and throw because he could say yes to that qualification statement that he made earlier. He's already said that she was guilty of it and he could pick up a stone, but he doesn't. Now that's controversial. Why did he not? So is this the Jesus that just condones it, lets it happen, pushes underneath the rug and say it's all fine? A lot of people say that. This is that social picture we have of Jesus in our day and time. You know, like Jesus just has love and mercy and grace for everybody and he just loves. He never condemns the non-condemning, non-judgmental Jesus. Some people even contort this to say that, see, not, no one can say anything about anyone else's sin because no one's perfect, right? So now we can't say anything about anyone who is doing anything wrong. Is that what we have here? it's like people pause and yet there's the rest of the sentence. I mean, that's not all Jesus said to her. The rest of this in verse 11 is gonna be up on the screen. So I want you to say this with me out loud. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus already said she was guilty. He said she was guilty. She did it. He calls it out again. Like this is sin. What you're doing is sin. He calls for change. Go and sin no more. He calls it out. He doesn't condone it. But he's leading her to a place where hopefully she found. And this is, this is our big idea, and hopefully this is gonna be true for everybody here that's listening. At one point, this is our big idea. You've received mercy through Christ, so stop sinning. You've received mercy through Christ, so stop sinning. Don't you wanna know what happened to her? I know I do. What does Jesus do? Does this mean that he is okay with low morals? You know, the truth is what Jesus came to do, he said he came to bring truth and his entire life was marked by controversy because he kept saying things like, well, you have heard this, but I'm saying this because he came to bring the truth of God's law. Most people, everybody was misunderstood God's law. God's law doesn't save us. God's law doesn't change us. God's law, it's not just about conforming our right behaviors. If I just do these 10 things, then I'm good. God's law was to convict our hearts, convict us. He'd often say, God would often say, it's not your sacrifices that are required, it's your repentance, it's your heart, right? And so Jesus would kind of up the game, like, no, this is not what God's word, you misunderstood it. Things like in, in Matthew chapter five, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yikes. Have you ever looked at someone lustfully that's not your spouse? Whether you're 13 and you've never been married or you're married or you're 45 and not married. Have you ever thought about or kind of played out having sex with someone in your mind that's not your spouse? What does that make us? an adulterer, an intent, and heart. Well, have you looked at pornography and let your mind kind of just run? Or watch the TV show or a movie and keep replaying that scene or go back to watch that scene and let your imagination go? What does that make us? Adulterers and heart and intent? Wow. That's the bad news. The good news is there's forgiveness for that. 
Jesus taught his disciples these harsh, these difficult truths, and his disciples would go on to teach others the same exact truths. John, the apostle that wrote this letter, also went on later to write in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Maybe we need to be careful about how we use that word. Have you ever hated someone? What does that make us? Murderers by intent in our hearts. That's the bad news. The good news is there's forgiveness for that. Paul, another disciple of Jesus that learned directly from Jesus, writes this in Galatians chapter five. Man, this is kind of a list. I'm just gonna read it to you. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I've warned you before, so he's warned them on multiple occasions, that those who do such things will what? Not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that low morals? No, probably you're thinking, man, that's harsh. Seriously, God, that's a lot. Let me ask you something. Wouldn't you, would you agree that if, if you knew you would, if we knew we would never get caught, we'd probably do a lot more immoral, dumb things, evil things? If we knew we'd never get caught, no consequences? Yeah, you see, the truth is that even a lot of Christians, you know, it's not, sometimes we, we don't really fear God's judgment we fear getting caught by our wife, by our husband, by our parents, by the teacher, by the police. You see, there's a good fear in consequences, especially when it's righteous judgment. I am glad it's a good thing that we have drunk driving laws and enforcement. Why? I sure hope you think twice, even 10 times before you drink and drive, because my kids and my grandkids are out on those roads. There's an app that was made a long time ago to help people with, you know, pornography, especially addiction, just looking at porn. And the way that it was built was interesting. It was that you could go anywhere. You download it. You could go anywhere. It doesn't stop you from going anywhere. It doesn't stop you from being able to navigate to something, search something. But you set up an accountability partner in the beginning. And so every day, your accountability partner, whoever that you set up, got an e- gets an email with every site you went to. How many marriages families were saved because they thought about the consequences. Bad news isn't bad news if it's really actually good news. And sometimes, if we're honest, we don't like to think we're bad people. And we sure don't like to tell others that they might be bad people. I mean, it just sounds, ugh, right? You don't like it. It's not comfortable. I'm the same. I don't like to think of myself as a, sometimes I do, but even when I think about myself, like, you know, self-loathing, like, oh, I'm a horrible, horrible person, there's always somebody I know that I'm better than. <laughs> well, at least I'm not that guy, right? There's always somebody. We think we're better than we are at times, you know, we, and we don't want to tell other people, but what, what God's word tells us, the truth that God just keeps telling us is Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All that falls, the wages of sin, our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus is a key phrase, and we'll come back to that in a little bit, but in Christ Jesus is eternal life, is salvation. You see, the only reason that Jesus has good news or came to bring good news is because there's bad news that we need to hear and deal with, that all have sinned. I've, every single one of us has made a personal decision to rebel against God, to say no to God, to reject God, to do our own thing, and with that comes the consequences. Separation, condemnation from God, spiritual death. Those are the wages that I deserve. M- my wife sometimes, well, oftentimes will go, is there anything in my teeth? Have you ever done that? You know, like, hey, is there anything in my teeth? After you eat, whatever, just whatever. Because it's, you know, maybe it's like, hey, is my zipper up or my shoes out of my pants? Oh, whatever, Do I have toilet paper hanging out my shoes or something? Whatever, like, you don't want to go out in public and look silly, right? It's awkward, it's embarrassing, right? And so like, hey, just, just let me know. What if you had, what if there's a guy that you saw doing some things that, man, it sure seems like this is leading to maybe adultery. What, what if there's a lady, a friend, you know, that, man, she sure is talking a whole lot to this guy that's not her husband. What if you had a friend, school, work, wherever, you know, classmate or a neighbor that was considering cheating or stealing? Well, I don't want to say anything. It's their business, right? It's none of my business to say what they're doing. What if you looked at it from a different perspective? What if a year from now, those marriages were going to fall for divorce? What if a year from now, that friend of yours was going to be in jail or in juvie or in a horrible lifestyle? Would you wish you would have said something? Tried? You see, bad news isn't necessarily bad news if it can lead to good news. Because the truth... All right, is, that be- is this on? All right, I'll turn this one off just just make sure. All right, boom, there we go. All right, so apologize for that. That was awkward, right? So um, we'll recognize it. We'll accept it. That was awkward, not intended to happen, total distraction, but now we move on. All right, good. All right, so um, truth. Bad news isn't necessarily bad news if it's just truth. And if I know where I am, then that gives me the opportunity to do something about it, and it could also help me not lead to more bad news to myself, to my friends, to my family, and those that I love. So it could be that bad news is actually good news. That's, you know, something to think about. Luke 17, 3, this is what Jesus says if you have a brother, a Christian, brother or sister. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. It's not bad news if it leads to good news. It's not bad news if it's true, 
so that they can be freed from more consequences of the stuff that it's going to lead into their lives or bring them into. He also, this is important because when we think about like judging or calling out someone's sin, it's not like the religious leaders were doing. It's not a hypocrisy. That's what Jesus said things like, hey, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone else's eye, right? Oftentimes, Christians or maybe some of us, you know, we love, we're okay, we're comfortable with our sin. I'm not going to call out my sin, confess it publicly, but I'm okay with calling your sin out. That's hypocrisy. And the world should call us out for that because that's wrong. And that's what the leaders were doing. They were using this lady as a pawn. They weren't willing, they weren't confessing their sin. Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Back in John chapter 7, if you were here for that message. So we should judge rightly. And this is where we mess it up so many times because we're not willing to let myself be judged, but I'm so willing to judge you. I'm so willing to call you out. And there's a difference between judgment like this is wrong and I'm also going to be the jury and carry out your sentence. That's two different things. Sometimes there are things that I should do in response. Sometimes it's just I call it out for what it is. It's sin, but I still love you, right? And in all of those cases, you're still a child made in the image of God. There is a time for judgment. There is a time for calling sin out. There's also a time for mercy. And more than mercy, God gives us grace to extend that mercy. When, you know, in, in our practical life, if you're a parent, man, you know this. Everybody knows this, I think. But it, like there's times when your kid does something and you call them out for it, and they really are repentant. They're contrite. They're, they're, they're sorrowful for what they've done. You, you can see it. Like maybe it's tears or just you know. Man, I know that they really, truly are sorry. And then there's times when you know they're not. They're not, they're not, they're saying the words, but they don't care. They're just sorry they got caught. And there's times I think when you know in your own self, you know when you're truly sorry for something and when you're just sorry for getting caught. Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians, and in it he, he calls out sin, just like Jesus had done. And so he calls out this sin in people's lives, and he says that it caused them a lot of grief. It caused them a lot of grief. Like they really struggled with it because it was like, it felt harsh, let's, let's say. And then he writes another letter, and he says in that letter, listen, I was a little concerned because I know of the grief that it caused you, and I thought maybe you'd hate me, maybe you would just keep going on, whatever. And this is what he said in John, I mean, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it's so powerful. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He says, I'm glad that I sent that letter. I'm glad that I called out that sin in your life. Why? Now listen, they could have chosen to read that, to hear that, and continued stubbornly, defiantly in their sin. They could have done what they wanted to do and just gone on. But they had godly grief. And how do we know it was godly grief? Because it led them to repentance. Remember what repentance looks like? It's that kid. It's that when I know that I'm sorry, not just sorry for getting caught, and that's what godly grief does. It leads to repentance. It's times of refreshing and peace and forgiveness. Worldly grief leads me to continue in my despair and continue in my actions, which means continue to have the consequences in my life and other people's lives as well. The bad news is we're all guilty. We're all sinners. doesn't matter if you've sinned once or a thousand times. 
God doesn't grade on a curve. I'm either holy, perfect, or I'm a sinner. I don't like to hear that, but it's true. And it may sound like bad news, but it's only bad news if it doesn't lead you to the good news. Matter of fact, the greatest news, like in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Wow. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Did Jesus teach some kind of cheap grace? No. My sin was what put Jesus on that cross. Our sin is what put Jesus on that cross. It cost him his life. That's how much it cost. And to think about that, how can I continue to know what he did and to be mindful of it? How can I go on? How can I keep going in this direction, knowing what you did for me? Paul even writes about this because he was talking to the Christians in Rome. Romans 6, 1 through 2, they apparently had said yes to Jesus but thought that they could keep on sinning, going on doing whatever they wanted to do. And Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Of all people that should want to stop is those who know what we've done and what it cost. We can't continue in it. Whether I understand it fully, can comprehend it, when I was, when we were lowered into the water of baptism, the old me, the sinner me, the sinful me, the me that was condemned and at enmity with God, that was not at peace with God, went into that water and died. And what came out of that water was a new creation, a new life in Christ. I didn't do a thing to deserve it. I didn't do a thing to earn it. I still had done all of those things that I have done. I can't overcome them. I can't do enough to take them away. But in Christ, now God sees me as forgiven, as righteous, because Jesus' righteousness is placed upon me. Wow. Does Jesus teach a cheap grace? No. Does Jesus condone sin? No. He meets it, calls it out for what it is, and extends mercy. And not just mercy, but grace on top of mercy, which means even more than I would deserve, forgiveness, gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life with him. John goes on to write, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I can't keep going defiantly. Listen, this isn't like falling into sin. People ask, well, after the waters of baptism, I'm never sin again? No, like on, the, on this side of eternity, you're not going to live a sinless life. But, but you don't continue in defiant, stubborn, continual sin. 
And I'm open to confession when I recognize my sin. What if you say, well, I can't go. I don't know how to do that. I can't stop sinning. Well, here's what the truth is, is you've always been trying on your own. Now he gives you the Holy Spirit, which gives you the power, the ability. Yes, you will continue to be tempted, but you can say no. You can flee from temptation. You can put the words of God in your mind so that you know what is truth, so that you can be encouraged and strengthened by them. You can pray. You can be in that relationship with Jesus where you're mindful of what he's done for you. And then, like John goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess it. We are regularly confessing our sin to him. When you sin, you don't pretend like, ah, it's not a big one. It's, no, you confess it to him. I'm sorry. And then you confess it to a brother or sister in Christ for accountability. You confess it to the one that you've harmed, that you've wronged, that you've hurt. And when your brother or sister confesses to you and they're contrite, they're sorrow, they're repented, they're repentful, you forgive them. Not keep getting bitter. That's what it looks like. Our big idea can be true for no matter where you are. You've received mercy through Christ, so stop sinning. You will be met with forgiveness if I come contrite, repentant. Where are you today? Are you like that adulterous woman who recognizes you're caught? You've been walking around shameful, guilty. Get on your knees and confess, repent, and be forgiven. You know what? Satan can no longer do, he can no longer point the finger at you. Because if God has forgiven you, then you're forgiven. So allow yourself to forgive yourself and know, I don't feel it, but I know it and I can live it like I'm forgiven. Or maybe you're like the guy that was kind of not really mentioned in this story and you think you're getting away with it, right? Well, sometimes she gets pregnant, sometimes she doesn't. Sometimes we get caught, sometimes we don't. And you think, well, I didn't get caught, so... I'm free. But to God, it's the same. He knows, and there's a judgment coming. The same is true for that person. Get on your knees and confess and repent while there's still time. And what will we all meet? What will we find? Mercy and forgiveness. Wherever you are, if you need to respond to Jesus today, then please text us, email us your names and information will be on the screen, whether you're in person or online. If you're here in person, in a few moments, some of our friends will be up here to have a conversation with you, pray with you, maybe help you confess your sin, or to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the very first time today. Maybe your next step is to come back next week as we continue in John 8. Don't forget, we got Sunday night simple at Trenton Campus, 6.30 p.m. on Sundays now, if you can't make it on Sunday mornings. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have some, a few moments with some music playing, and we're going to have a time of communion. This is going to be a time for you to respond to what God's Word said today. This is a tough one. If you're not a believer in the room, then I'll just encourage you, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to obey Him or obey ourselves? Trust His Word or yours? If you are a believer in this room, then maybe it's time to confess. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin in our life. We've been pretending, we've been trying to hide we've been wanting to get away with, or I've just not allowed myself to be repentant over. 
Maybe today you need to confess that sin to God. And then maybe today when you leave here, you need to confess that to another brother or sister in Christ for accountability or to the person that you've wronged. And you know what that means? That means when we do that, as scary and as difficult as that may seem, we'll be free. We'll be at peace. I'll be able to love my wife better. I'll be able to love my kids better. I'll be able to love you better. Times of refreshing. Hey, communion, when you come in each week, get them at the doors, you can grab them. Pro tip is to take the bread first, the juice second. If you're a believer, baptized believer, then during this moment, we encourage you to take this. You know what scripture says that we should do during communion? We should examine ourselves. So please examine yourself during this moment. Is there something that I've been unconfessed, that I've been defiantly going on a habit that's been stopping me from being holy? Confess that to him. If you're not a believer, then please take this moment. Man, I'm glad that you're here. Take this moment to just maybe spend some time with God reflecting upon what he's done for you. Considering, am I ready to say yes, that confess him as my Lord and Savior? I'm gonna say a prayer out loud and I encourage you to pray silently. Begin believing that he is here, that he listens, that he cares about you. And if that's true, then what would you say to him right now? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ who demonstrates your mercy, your love, and also your truth. Thank you for your word that, God, I can trust. It doesn't tell me what I want to hear sometimes, but it always tells me what I need to hear. And I need to hear that I need to confess my sin and I'm a sinner. Because I know I feel like it. Thank you for your word that tells me what I will be met with when I confess. It's your forgiveness and your mercy. And there's some of us in this room and watching online that we needed to hear that today. And more than needing to hear it, we need to respond. Because we've never, we've never truly been forgiven. We've never confessed. We've never repented. We've never fallen on our knees and said we needed the Savior to confess you as our Lord and Savior, to enter those waters of baptism, be forgiven, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we have the power to sin less and less and less and be more and more like Christ. And there's some of us that are watching or here, and the truth is, God, we've been Christians, we've been blessed by salvation, by forgiveness, but man, we have not been living in it. We have not been confessing our sin. We have been continuing in some of these unrepentant sins. And I pray that, God, we would confess to you again today. I pray that our families would be freed because we'd have fathers and husbands and mothers and moms that come home today free, free from the sin that plagues us, free from the guilt and the shame that conforms us and controls us, free to live in Christ. And then we walk out of here free to love people the way you've loved us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.